Welcome to this week's episode of Past Deadline, the Ithacan's weekly news podcast where we discuss the biggest stories of the week and how they came to be. I'm your host, Sophia Tulp, Managing Editor here at the Ithacan. This week, we are going to talk about an issue that's created a lot of buzz nationally, and it just so happens to have some connections to goings-on here at Ithaca College as well. Title IX. That's the topic of today's discussion. President Donald Trump and Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos made headlines again this week, this time on September 22nd, when the Education Department announced it would be formally rescinding the Obama-era guidance on how schools should handle sexual assault cases under Title IX federal law. So for those of you who don't know, Title IX is a federal law that prevents discrimination based on sex or gender in any educational program or any activity that receives federal funding from the U.S. government, like Ithaca College, for example. And Education Secretary Betsy DeVos announced earlier this month that her department was concerned that previous guidance on handling sexual misconduct cases denied proper due process to those being accused of the misconduct. It just so happens that right now at Ithaca College, we actually have an ongoing Office of Civil Rights investigation, and it's being debated on that same topic, whether or not due process of the accused person was observed. Were they discriminated against? Those are kind of the questions that are being highlighted in this investigation. Also in the realm of Title IX, our current Title IX coordinator here at the college, Tiffany Zeman, just announced she was leaving, and Linda Koenig, a current residential life administrator, will be stepping in in her place. It's a crucial time right now for Title IX nationally and here at IC, and a lot is happening on that front. So we will bring all of that together in today's podcast. Without further ado, my guest this week is someone we have not heard from yet. Her name is Salisa Kalakal, and she's a senior writer here at the Ithacan. She served as the opinion editor previously, and right now she's actually the host of another podcast we do called Office Hours. So Salisa has worked in many capacities for the last four years for the Ithacan, and she reported the story this summer in July about the civil rights investigation going on at the college. So Salisa, welcome, and can you brief us on what went on uh, there this summer? So can you tell us about that story you wrote? Sure. So how I found out about the story... um, I'm going to be honest, it was pretty random. Um, The uh, Chronicle of Higher Education, they have this database of Title IX lawsuits. And one day during my internship um, this summer in New York City, I was like, okay, I'm just going to check it and see what comes up. And I checked it, and I typed in Ithaca College in the search bar, and lo and behold, we popped up for the first time, and I was really shocked. And so I looked at it, and it looked really serious, and... It also looked like the lawsuit was pretty much filed like two semesters beforehand when Tom Roshan was still president. So after that, I forwarded the information to the editor-in-chief and we talked about it and we knew that we had to do a story on this. But first we had to get all the information, which meant reading the document thoroughly, reading um, up on like what are sexual assault policies here at school, and then talking to Tiffany Zeman, who was still the Title IX coordinator at the time, and having her walk us through what she knows about the lawsuit and also what she does as a Title IX coordinator in helping students like walk through how to adjudicate their sexual assault cases. Adjudication is basically a legal term for the process in which if they are found guilty or not of the crime or misdemeanor that they're being accused of. So in college campuses, the process is different from what you would see in a court system just because we can, like, it doesn't necessarily go through the courts. So instead of putting someone in jail, we can do something else, like suspend them or do something 
different so they don't have to be incarcerated. And then I also spoke to someone from the Office of Civil Rights who gave me some background info on how OCR kind of goes through these investigations. And basically what was in the lawsuit was a student. We're not sure if they are still here or if they graduated. Um, We couldn't find out that information because of privacy issues. But this student filed a lawsuit saying that they had been accused of sexual assault or something of that matter. And during their adjudication of the case, and this person who filed the complaint felt like the college had treated them unfairly on the basis of gender and race. And that does still fit into Title IX because Title IX, of course, is the kind of gender equity law. And it was originally passed um, for sports. So having like equal, equal representation of females and males in sports teams, especially in schools across the country. But it also is extended to sexual assault and making sure that each person is treated fairly and no one's discriminated against. But in the past couple of years, men who have been accused of sexual assault have been using Title IX to kind of say that they were also discriminated against because they're a man. And that's kind of what this person was essentially saying. Um, Not just being a man, but being of whatever race that they are. They felt like the college did not treat them fairly. Um, Some of the accusations say like they weren't given an attorney, even though in our policy guidelines, we're supposed to tell them that they can have an attorney present. The person also felt like one of the people on the judicial board. So there's a board that is made up of faculty, staff, and I believe a couple of students who are trained by the Advocacy Center in Ithaca to kind of, you know, teach them how to handle sexual assault issues. So they felt like one of the people on that board was biased against them. And usually if you feel that way, I believe in our policies, it says that like they, that person has to be switched out or they have to be taken out of the process because obviously they'll be biased against that person. And that person felt like that was not afforded to them. And the investigation is still ongoing, and we're not really sure where it's going to go. But last spring, representatives from the Office of Civil Rights did come to the college, and they conducted a few like closed focus group discussions. Um, I did not go, but it was a way to kind of see if Ithaca College, I guess, had this environment that was uh, sexually hostile to students. And that's kind of part of the OCR's investigation. It's not just figuring out if this person was treated wrongly by the process, but if there's are systemic issues in the way that the school treats sexual assault. So that's where kind of the hostile environment comes from. Um, but that might change because Betsy DeVos is uh, the education secretary and she has issues with that. And she's kind of made comments suggesting that she would give the OCR leeway in that systemic kind of investigation and instead of um, OCR finding out if, um, you know, for example, if Ithaca College promotes a sexually hostile environment, it's just figuring out if this individual person was wronged by the school. But that's why OCR came to our college in the spring. They gathered info from that. They talked to Tiffany Zeman, students, faculty and staff, and I'm sure they went through all of our guidelines and that's kind of informing how they're going to see and determine what happens with us. And let's say OCR does determine that we did wrong this student, then we have to enter into a resolution agreement. And whatever is in that resolution agreement, it's a way for us to improve our policies and make sure that this 
that hopefully doesn't happen again in the future. And then we're given a timeline where we have to kind of feasibly make those things happen. Yeah. Are you familiar at all with the changes that DeVos has already announced? So the kind of yeah. rolling back of the quote unquote dear colleague letter of 2011? Yes. Yeah, I'm familiar. And that'll be interesting for us and all the other colleges that have active Title IX investigations right now because she's changing how we judge sexual assault cases. So right now, the kind of level with which we find someone guilty is at the lowest level, but she thinks that that is unfair to people who are accused of sexual assault, and she thinks colleges should have the opportunity to raise that level. It's not sure if she's going to officially make that the guideline, but right now those are part of the interim guidelines, allowing colleges the opportunity to choose between this very low level or to kind of go higher to set the bar higher for finding someone guilty. And I'm not sure what that is going to do for us, given that we're currently in an investigation. It could alter the outcome because it might make the OCR look differently at our case. Maybe people who agree with DeVos might think that our case was judged too harshly and they might go back and like revisit it again, which would, of course, lengthen the investigation for us as well. Yeah, I think that's interesting that you mentioned that. I spoke to a legal expert earlier who is um, going to be here in our podcast as well. And she mentioned that these Office of Civil Rights suits, when they're brought on the basis of gender discrimination, so a man saying he was discriminated against, most of those don't go through. They don't um, favor the person bringing that suit. But where they do succeed is if that the person who was accused of the misconduct would then bring another suit, like separate of the OCR, um, based on the fact that they weren't given due process. That's where they usually succeed, which ties back to this um, these new changes by DeVos because she's altering that kind of scrutiny of the evidence part of it, which would go back to were they given a fair trial, quote unquote, because it's student conduct, but did they receive due process? So how do you think that relates? I think, yeah, that's a really interesting point because there have been a lot of cases where men have come forward and said, I was discriminated because I'm a man and I was accused of sexual assault. But then you're right in that they kind of come back and then they say, actually, I wasn't afforded due process, which from a legal standpoint is a stronger argument because you can argue that the way that a certain college deals with sexual assault is too restrictive. It's um, inherently biased against the accused. You can get a better argument out of that. So that's kind of what's been happening. And there have been some cases in some colleges and universities where that's kind of paid off. And the school kind of awards, I think, the accused some money or um, something of the sorts because the argument that they weren't afforded due process is can be strong for them. Especially there are like a whole team of lawyers out there who kind of exist partly to represent these people. They feel that they've been wronged by the system and they feel like colleges shouldn't act as a different court of law from the American court of law. And they're kind of up there fighting for these people and these students. So I think for us, with our case, right now the students is invoking Title IX and saying that they were discriminated against because of their gender and their race. But maybe if they lose this case, it's possible that they could, you know, file another lawsuit saying that they didn't afford due process. That would start another investigation and another lawsuit, but it would look at the specific processes that we have and seeing if, does it strip rights away from the accused? And if it does, then that's an issue. And we could, like, we could possibly get 
in trouble for that if that became the case and the person wanted to switch their lawsuit to a different reason. Yeah. And do you know um, anything more about the timeline when this might be resolved? I know a lot of it's up in the air. It is very much up in the air. I believe we tried asking Tiffany Zeman for, for an update a couple months ago, but she said everything was still very much up in the air. And with these new changes, I can imagine OCR is kind of going through this weird transition period right now where they're not sure what to do with the cases that they currently have. And then now we have a new Title IX director, which comes at a weird time because we're still in this investigation. But now, you know, they have to take over. And, you know, that's going to be different because now OCR has to deal with a different Title IX director. And we're not sure how that's going to work out. So we're in a very weird spot. Thank you so much, Alicia. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a trend, right? Like, recently, a lot of accused people in issues of sexual misconduct have been filing complaints with the Office of Civil Rights. In an article published in Inside Higher Ed last year, so in 2016, they reported that a slew of recent court cases had been won on this principle. The accused students and legal experts, which include the federal and state judges who decided the cases, um, there's been at least 10 since 2016, say that colleges and universities are eliminating basic procedural protections in an attempt to combat campus sexual assault. So what they're saying is these students aren't getting a proper trial with the right consideration of evidence um, as they would if they were the victim in the case. The previous policy that some accused took issue with was what was called a Dear Colleague Letter. It was released in 2011 by the Obama administration, and it instructed schools to use a, and this is a legal term here, a preponderance of evidence standard, rather than the more strict, and this is also a legal term, clear and convincing evidence standard to prove sexual assault. So a preponderance of evidence basically means that there needs to be a greater weight of evidence in terms of more convincing evidence and its accuracy, um, but not actually the amount of evidence. But the judge needs to use this to decide in favor of one side or the other. So they need to have a lot of convincing evidence that is perceived to be true. So technically, there doesn't need to be more evidence necessarily against the accused person. It just needs to be presumed truthful and be convincing. On the other hand, clear and convincing evidence means that a party has the burden of proving any claim by presenting evidence that leaves you with a firm belief or conviction that it is highly probable and that the factual claims are true. So this is a higher standard of proof than the one I mentioned before, which is called preponderance. So now DeVos and the Trump administration want to kind of revert back to this clear and convincing evidence standard because they argue that the Obama era guidance gave a lower standard of proof in sexual misconduct cases and that it kind of suggests a discriminatory purpose against the accused, um, which has mainly been men thus far demonstrated. Um, So this is pretty complicated. And here is Sandra Schuster. She's an expert in the field of student conduct, Title IX cases, and higher ed. I talked to Schuster on the phone today to get some background on the complicated national and legal context of the issue. The first 20 years of my career, I spent in higher education. I worked as a dean at Ohio State and um, was set on the the board of directors for Planned Parenthood and the Planned Parenthood in the in the counties in which I sat uh, on their board was not an operation or organization that provided for um, abortions, but they were a huge resource for our female students for contraceptive care. And so for me, it began the um, the movement and the involvement into uh, individuals. Uh, 
their sexuality, the rights of individuals to be sexual beings, and um, self-care that was part of it. So in my role as a dean, I saw a lot of uh, circumstances uh, involving sexual abuse and became increasingly interested in it and went to law school after that. Um, and after law school, I served as a senior assistant attorney general here in Ohio. We represented all the colleges and universities in the state, and I advised the colleges about their policies and their procedures and their approaches. Um, from there, I served as a general counsel at St. Clair College and then uh, joined my partners with the Incom Group in Atixa, focusing almost exclusively now on uh, issues of sexual equality, uh, discrimination, and, and the work related uh, to doing that, training people to do that, and uh, helping them write their policies. So, you know, I have a 40-year career of immersion in, in my own evolution on this. When students are accused of sexual misconduct, how does that legal slash student conduct process work? And how has that changed from the Obama era policy to what DeVos has announced now? I think it's important to understand that it's it's continually evolving. And I'm not totally certain that the student conduct process has changed substantially um, under uh, Secretary DeVos. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a little bit of background. Yeah, so... so um, In 2011, with the publication of the Dear Colleague letter, it became uh, increasingly evident that uh, issues of sexual violence were not just a violation of the Student Conduct Code, but were also a violation of federal civil rights laws. And therefore, the approach to it was necessitated um, to have an investigatory, uh, civil rights investigatory model. I think that was one of the biggest shifts you, you talk about Obama here. I think one of the biggest shifts was the acknowledgement and reinforcement of the rights of the victim survivor in the process, that the process was not merely owned by that person who had been accused uh, or the person who had been accused was not the only owner of uh, due process rights and protections, but also the person bringing forth the allegation because they were in essence the person who had been discriminated against. The reason the 2011 document became vulnerable with the new administration is that those documents both went beyond merely describing the expectations from the law, but actually proscribed elements. And of course, one of the elements that we know that was proscribed was the mandate for application of the preponderance of the evidence standard. I was hoping that you could explain that kind of legal jargon a little bit more because it's kind of hard to understand, but I know it's at the heart of this issue. Let's look at it this way. Think, and if you'll envision a set of judicial scales. Um, When we're talking about an issue where one party has made an allegation against another one, um, neither party should be advantaged. So neither party should have their should have a you know an extra set of weights put on their side of those scales. So what happens on those scales is gathering of evidence that you do in an investigation, and you put the evidence on either side of the scales and see which way they tip. When we're talking about a preponderance. Those two sides of the scales start off absolutely even. Um, So you may hear people say, well, whatever happened to the presumption of innocence until proven guilty? And in essence, the the accused individual 
doesn't start out with any presumption because there's no burden to overcome uh, to prove a person guilty. If you think, keep thinking about those scales and um, put one side of the scales up at the top and then think about the other side being at the bottom, that really represents what is required in proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And right there at the top, is that accused person, person has been accused of a crime, um, that's the presumption of their innocence. And the only way that person could be found guilty is if law enforcement can put enough evidence on that top scale to push it all the way to the bottom. And then that other side pops up, and that's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. When we're talking about a preponderance standard, there is no distinction. They both start off evenly. And the reason why is because of the expectation of equity. And equity is fairness under the circumstances. So it's not merely the rights of the accused individual, but it's also the rights of the person bringing forth the allegation. What we've seen here at our school, at Ithaca College, is there's this Office of Civil Rights investigation going on about an alleged sexual assault that happened last year. And the person accused of this misconduct is bringing a case saying they were discriminated against based on gender. And I've read a lot of articles saying this is a trend. A lot of the accused parties are calling for these investigations with the OCR or they're filing separate suits in court. And I was wondering if you knew anything about that or could kind of talk about that trend based on your experience. I'm happy to. Um, In all the cases where an accused individual thus far has um, alleged that they were discriminated against, and so to be discriminated against, you bring a Title IX action, um, that's never been supported because, remember, the action must be based on the person's gender under Title IX. It's a gender equity law. Um, And unless the person bringing a complaint, in this case the accused, can demonstrate that the actions directed toward them was not because they were accused, but because they were male, then it's going to fail. But where they are being really successful is saying that they were denied due process rights or that the school school reached an erroneous outcome. And that happens in circumstances where, remember I started talking about those scales being equal and um, institutions being required to have an equitable approach so it's fair to both parties. Well, unfortunately, some schools put their heavy thumb on the side of the victim survivor and um, didn't extend the same kind of rights, opportunities to review materials or uh, present witnesses or um, see information before hearing to the accused individual that they did to the victim survivor. And so they're being successful in these um in their, at least in their lawsuits. There haven't been very many OCR complaints brought by the accused, but there's been a lot of lawsuits. And the people that have been accused and then typically dismissed or suspended from our schools um, are winning at pretty high rates. And they're doing so because the institution is not engaging in an equitable, fair balancing of the process, but rather are being um, more 
centered toward, because we were instructed to do that, by the way, by the Dear Colleague Letter of 2011, um, to be far more focused and centered toward that victim-survivor. And I think part of it was overcoming decades of of not focusing on the victim-survivor at all. In fact, relegating them in many cases to being merely a witness in the university's case. And so the pendulum swung really hard the other direction. And schools trying to get it right began dismissing, um, and it's so far been all men who have been dismissed, um, but dismissing men from school who had been accused of sexual misconduct, and they haven't given them the same level of rights or the same opportunities for support that they have to the victim survivor. And so, you know, while I believe schools try really hard to get it right, um, too many of them fail to get it right. Uh, and I think that what, one of the things we're seeing with Betsy DeVos um and, and from my standpoint, she created far more confusion than she solved. But is um, she's listening very, very carefully to the voices of individuals and their parents and their lawyers who say, I was unfairly removed from school. Um, one of the things that she's done in, the, in her new uh, Dear Colleague letter uh, is to say, schools, you can use a different standard than merely a preponderance, which means making a finding based on the greater weight of the evidence, 50% in a feather, in essence, um, you can use a higher standard. You can use the standard of clear and convincing to find the person. Well, that's going to automatically disadvantage the person bringing forth the allegation. So we ended up tipping the scales in a different direction. So I think that's going to bring about more issues than it's, than it's going to purportedly solve. But we'll see where that goes. On the other side, women's advocacy groups like Feminists United here on the college campus are saying this is kind of a two steps back sort of solution. Their mindset is that, yes, we need to protect the rights of the accused, but we also need to protect the often silenced voices of the victims and arguably that aspect they believe to be more important. So I know this because I spoke with Feminists United today. They actually hosted their weekly meeting all about this topic. I attended and Tiffany Zeman, Title IX coordinator, also had a few things to say at this meeting. So last week, the Department of Education said, you know what, we don't like anymore this 2011 Dear Colleague letter. A lot of schools were like, just kind of lost their shit because they all of these structures that they put in place they're now being told like maybe you don't need to do that and that was really concerning for some folks because a lot of things that were in the dear colleague letter were talking about ways to protect victims and reporting students how do we provide interim measures so they can still access their education how do we make sure these things are done in a timely fashion how do we make sure that um, we're using a standard of proof that isn't you know the, the same as a court of law um, and so a lot of schools kind of panicked because now they're being told like this might not be oh, this might not be the way you need to do it. New York State schools, however, had all these other structures already in place that um, we know were following the law, and so we're not solely reliant on kind of the OCR guidance to say like here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing it. A lot of things that we're doing are kind of the right things to do, and so right now we're not being told yet that we have to change all of those things, um, but we're being told that there may be some new guidance coming out around that. And so it's been pretty interesting. Like when it, when they were, it initially came out, I think there was a lot of concern that basically colleges and universities were just going to stop. They were just going to 
like stop paying attention to things, stop um, making sure they're responding, stop doing education. But most schools have their policies in place and they need to continue to follow their policies. Some of the big concerns that came out of that are the timeline. So um, people are really concerned that if the Office of Civil Rights is saying that there's not like this 60, they had put originally a 60 day window. From the moment someone initiates a report, the very last part of any appeal that happens should be 60 calendar days, um, which sounds like a really long time. Sometimes when you're in the process, that actually can feel pretty short. Um, so people are really concerned about that, though, because at 60 days, it really does encourage people to move as quickly as they can and make sure that they are really responding to things. So people are worried that like now things are going to drag out for a year, two years, whatever. Um, and then the other piece is what we call the preponderance of evidence. So um, basically the 2011 letter said school, college, and university need to use this burden of proof called preponderance of evidence, which means more likely than not, or kind of 51% of the information that we have will lead us to believe either there was a violation or there wasn't a violation. Um, and there, basically the Office of Civil Rights is saying, that's not appropriate if this is the only place that you're using this standard of proof is preponderance of evidence. So some schools where we're doing this thing called clear and convincing, which is like not really as far as like beyond a reasonable doubt as you hear on like the court systems, but like pretty dang sure, right? Um, so they were applying clear and convincing in some places, but then in their sexual misconduct cases, they were doing preponderance of evidence. And people are saying, well, why would you pick one or like why would you have two different things? Ithaca College, we've had preponderance of the evidence as our standard since well before the year college letter for all aspects of our judicial system. And so for us, we're again a little bit less concerned because the consistency was a, a question. Like, why would we use two different standards of proof? Um, again, that has been across the board for our entire conduct code since I, I started in 2006, and that's when, like, that was a standard in 2006. So those are kind of some of the, the big pieces. Um, they are going to do, we, we're actually on a phone call today with um, the Assistant Director of the, of the Office of Civil Rights, Candace Jackson, who said they're going to start maybe doing some rulemaking, and so that will be a little bit interesting, so potentially some more, instead of being guidance, and maybe some like laws and legal requirements attached to what Title IX looks like now, um, and so it'll be very interesting to see kind of where that ends up falling, but it's unclear what the timeline is. Like they were kind of, like, she was asked, like, what do you think the timeline is? Oh, we haven't really put one on again. Um, so that was a little concerning that. I don't think it'll be soon, um, but I think it will probably be in like the next year or so. We'll start seeing some new stuff coming out from that. Well, thank you so much for being here, Salisa, and thanks so much for listening, everybody. This has been Past Deadline from The Ithacan.